uh, one of the things, I'm not, I'm not all that green in terms of recycling. I, I'm just being honest. I know some of you are probably super green, super... Re- I, I just... I try my best. The problem is every time we've moved so much, every time we move, the, the colours change. So, so, like, when we lived in Port Stewart, the recycle bin was blue. And then we moved to Port Adarn and the general bin was blue. And so it took us months. We were putting plastic bags and all this stuff. And so I'm not... But, uh, but we live in a culture that it is reuse, recycle, restore. And, uh, and, 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 and this morning I want to think about restoration, that we have a God who is able to recycle some of the pain in our lives, some of the circumstances in our lives, but he's able also to bring something beautiful and restore things. And I have a video clip. It's just a trailer for a video um, that I want. It's a, it's a slum in Paraguay. It's kids living in a slum in Paraguay, uh, uh, on a landfill, actually. And, uh, and from the slum, they've got the rubbish and they've created an orchestra and they've restored and recycled the rubbish, and you'll see what happens. That's only two minutes long. Let's play that. in Paraguay actually made all of the instruments out of trash. Look at this. That's a fork, people. Let gifted music shine through tonight on that stage. Not brilliant. I thought, what an incredible line. The world sends us rubbish and we send them music. We send God our rubbish, our mistakes, our failures, our flaws, our insecurities, and he makes something beautiful out of them. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we look at Mark chapter 3. If you are in Mark chapter 3, the words will appear on the screen if you're not. Uh, Let's look at verse 1, first of all. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Uh, or the ESV puts it like this, uh, a withered hand. 
And so we are in Mark chapter 3. We're only in the third chapter of Mark. There's only been two chapters of Mark uh, before this. But there is this growing tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious establishment. In just two chapters, we have five different accounts of conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious establishment. And now there's going to be another confrontation. You see, I think many of this today and many people uh, only see Jesus as gentle, meek and mild. He's a little, a lot of us like to keep him in the manger, no crying he makes. Or we like to think him of a a long-haired, blonde-haired hippie who just kind went around saying nice little platitudes to people, making people feel good, never offending anybody. Kind of effeminate, he had a glow around him and he's always carrying a lamb. That's kind of the picture that we have of Jesus. And yet when we come to the scriptures, Jesus both comforted and confronted He faced squarely up to people in situations where things were wrong. And he still does that today. In our own lives he comforts, but in our own lives he also confronts. He comforts us, but he confronts us. He comforts us when we are weak, when we're broken, when we have been hurt. But sometimes he needs to confront things in our lives when they're wrong, when they're leading us in a wrong direction. He will not let us go down a direction that is going to lead to harm. And there's sometimes when he confronts us, and he does that here. He comforts and he confronts. And so we'll get to that in a minute. But he's in a synagogue, and we're told that a man with a shriveled hand is there. Other translations say a withered hand. Luke gives us a little bit more detail because Luke's a doctor. Remember Dr. Luke who wrote Acts also? He's a doctor, so he notices details a little bit better. Can't understand his handwriting, but he he gives us details. And uh, he says it was his right hand. He gives us that detail, it was his right hand. And in that culture, that was important because your right hand symbolized power. It symbolized authority and it symbolized blessing. When a father blessed his son... He used his right hand. And now we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand. It's the hand of power and authority. And so this wasn't just his hand. This was his useful hand. This was his hand of honor. This was his hand of blessing. This was his hand of authority. We don't know how it got withered. We don't know if it was an accident at birth. We don't know if he was born this way, if something went wrong, or if it was something that happened Later on, I, I, I have a friend with a withered right hand, exact, probably almost identical to this one. And uh, I, I remember talking to his mother and, and asking her what happened. And she said at his birth, the doctor was too rough with him when he was delivering this man, this little baby at that stage. The doctor didn't need to be. The doctor did. She feels the doctor did something wrong, uh, and now this man has a withered right hand. It's it's closed up like this, and he is a very highly successful businessman. And you'll know yourself if you go into any meeting or when men meet each other, what's the first thing they do? Shake hands. And when you go to shake this man's hand, there's an uncomfortableness there. I'm probably more uncomfortable sometimes than he is. Um, He's, learned, he's had it his whole life. He's 50 now. Um, but there's an uncomfortableness there because he's, he, everybody's conscious of his weathered right hand. It's twisted. It's distorted. It's deformed. It's, it's not working the way it should. It's smaller than it should be. 
And, and I just, I guess I, I wanted to ask this, and it's, uh, where, where are you withered? What's the part of your life that's not working where it should be? Where's the part of your life that's, that's shriveled? Where's the part of your life that, that isn't functioning as it should? Where's the place in your life that, I'm not talking about your broken washing machine at home, but where, where's the place in your life that's, that's distorted, deformed? Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your marriage, maybe there's a, it's your heart is shriveled, maybe it's your relationship with God has, has withered over time, maybe, maybe uh, it was something that you did, maybe it was something that was done to you that you had no control over, but there's a place in your life that's broken, this, this, this withered. My friend, his mother, when she talks about it, gets angry because it was negligence. Today, she would take him to court. Back 50 years ago, you just brought your child home and got on with it. And, but she said, look, it didn't have to happen. It was somebody else's fault. And maybe there's places in your life where you're shriveled, where there's weathered, where there's brokenness, where there's pain, where there's hurt, where there's deformity because of the mistreatment of somebody else. Maybe your heart is broken because somebody didn't look after it. Maybe a relationship is broken because somebody didn't take care of it, didn't handle it the way they should. Maybe your finances are, are messed up because you, you didn't look after them well or somebody robbed something from you, somebody took something from you. It shouldn't have happened. You know, sometimes in life we, we look at those withered places and those broken relationships and we, we think of of what could have been, what should have been if that person would have taken more care. We say they took the best from us. They took the best years of our life. Particularly, uh, maybe, maybe a, a, a woman who, who has uh, been cheated on, she, she feels like I gave the best years of my life to him and, and he took something from me. And we're going to see today that whatever has been taken from us, whatever has been stolen, whatever has been shriveled and deformed and distorted and broken and lost and robbed and withered, our God is a God of restoration. It was just his hand. It was just his hand. It wasn't all of him. He wasn't known as the shriveled hand man. He was a man with a shriveled hand. I think that's important for us to recognize. He wasn't the shriveled hand man. He was a man with a shriveled hand. In other words, one part of him that wasn't working properly didn't define his whole identity. In our culture, we need to recognize that because we label ourselves and we label other people by the one part of our life that isn't working properly. And there's some people who like to label themselves by one part of their life. In terms, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit controversial here. When it comes to same-sex, people who experience same-sex attraction, you can, that can become your whole identity. If you experience same-sex attraction, I want to say you're so welcome in this church. We love you. There is always a place for you in this church. That is not your whole identity, but your sexuality is not your identity. It is part of who you are. Me being straight is not my whole identity. Me being married is not my whole identity. Me being a pastor is not my whole identity. It is part of who I am. My whole identity is this. I am a child of God, loved by God, paid by the precious blood of Christ. 
But when we start pushing other identities, one part of our lives, and making them our whole identity, that's when we get into trouble. My identity is not the one bit that is not working right, the one bit that I choose to put. But my identity above all is that I am a man, or if you're a woman, that you're created in the image and likeness of God, that you are loved by God and that Jesus died for you. That is your core identity. And yet it was one part of him, but it impacted him disproportionately. It was one, I mean, what is your hand in terms of your whole body? It's one thirtieth. 140th. And yet it impacted his whole life. It impacted his ability to work. It impacted his ability to provide for his family. It impacted so many other areas. And sometimes we have one small part of us that isn't working right and it impacts so many other parts of our lives. That, that disproportionately impacts things that, that, that it isn't even directly connected with. We can have small hurts and losses that impact our whole lives. One small thing that happened to us five years ago, but it's still impacting our lives today. One nasty comment that was made by a parent or somebody in authority, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, they could be dead, but you're still living with that today. Sometimes the impact is disproportional to the wound in our lives. And that's what we see here. And so then when that happens, we start to define ourselves by our wounds rather than by our Savior. Look at verse 2 with me. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Sabbath was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And like I said, the opposition to Jesus has been intensifying because Jesus posed a threat to the established religious system of his day. It's hard to believe that this one man who was born in poverty in a manger, who grew up in a little hick town called Nazareth, was able to pose such a threat to this entire Jewish religious establishment that we read later on in verse 6 that they plotted to kill him. They were so threatened by this one man. He posed a threat to the established system. And I want to say to you that the church today still poses a threat to the established system. It might not be the established religious system, although in some places that's true. But there is an opposition, a growing opposition and antagonism to orthodox biblical Christianity and it is intensifying in our culture. By the liberal left secular culture and media. And if you don't fall into line, just like Jesus, because he wasn't falling into line, they wanted to get rid of him. If you don't fall into line, they will try to silence you. They will try to shut you up. They will put labels on you. They will shame you. They will call you all sorts of things that probably aren't true. And it will bring confrontation and conflict. Because they are trying to push a culture into line with something that does not line up with Scripture. They're telling us, you have to call me by my self-identifying label, otherwise you are a homophobe. And I don't know how to do that anymore. It used to just be LGB, now it's LGBTQ. There's na- Apparently there are 90 self-identifying labels. Do you know in Canada, I don't know where else, but I follow this guy Jordan Peterson, who some love, some hate, I like him. Um, 
in Canada, they brought out a law, he's a Canadian professor, that if you don't call somebody by how they want to be called, you can be put in prison. True story. If, if, if you call somebody, if they say, I am this, and you say, you're a man, you're a woman, or anything, they, they, you, you can be reported and put in prison. That is what is happening in our culture. There is a, a, that's why the Bible says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. The world, or as the message, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. If you don't support my right to marry anyone I want, there will be a day when I will have a couple walk in here and ask me to marry them. And I will say no. And I could end up being reported. I could end up being fined. I could end up being jailed. Please come and visit me. Okay? <laughs> if you want. I'm not trying to be controversial here, guys. I know this is a... And I, I am a compassionate conservative, okay? But I am just... I, I think I'm just tired of this, this intensifying pressure that if you don't... If you don't fall into line with my liberal cultural values, I am going to label you things that you're not. Until I shame you so much that you shut up or get out of the way. And that is what our culture is doing. Don't dare say that I'm wrong in what I believe or how I live. Don't dare say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Don't dare say that all religions are not the same. Don't dare vote no on certain issues. There is a growing opposition in our culture and it's always been the same against faithful followers of Jesus because we are called to swim against the current of culture. We are not called to be a people who go with the flow. We are called to be a people who are radically different, that our ultimate allegiance is not to the crown, it is not for God and Ulster, it is not to the government, it is to Jesus Christ. Our ultimate allegiance above everything and everyone and all laws, all rules, all systems is to Jesus Christ and him alone. And I am willing to die for that. I'm willing to go to jail for that. I'm willing to suffer for that. I do not care. My ultimate allegiance is to him. Do what you want. I will not fall in line with a culture that tries to tell me that I have to support something contrary to what I believe this word teaches. We are a Bible church. If that thins out the church, if it's you, me, and the other three, that's fine. I don't care. But if you want to be part of a church that is going to be compassionately conservative, that's going to believe the Bible and love everyone regardless of their background, this is the church for you. If you want to be part of a wishy-washy church that says the Bible doesn't matter, I can point you to two or three in the area. Okay? I'd better watch. This is podcasted. In the farther area. Um, where nobody knows me. I think sometimes you come here just to see how much I'll offend people. Um, for Jesus... The culture that he had opposition that brought him into confrontation and conflict was the religious establishment. Notice what it says, some of them. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse him. Some of them, who's it talking about? It's talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious police of the day. They took the law, they took the law, the Ten Commandments that God had given Moses that were meant to be good, and they were good. They were meant to bless God's people, but they kept adding their own, and they kept adding them more and breaking them down, and they ended up with something like 622 laws about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Like a woman couldn't look in a mirror on the Sabbath because if she saw a grey hair, she would pluck it out and that was working 
Some of you, that would be a night, you know? Like, you could walk. <laughs> Again. Um, listen, I've got a grey beard. I can do that. Uh, you, 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 could walk, you couldn't walk 2,000 steps on the Sabbath because that was working. If you walked 1,999, you were fine. It got that ridiculous. There were, and so this man-made culture, this man-made system of rules had developed that was not from God, but was from man. And they were using it to bring shame and guilt and to manipulate and control people. And that's what some religion can do. That religion tries to control where God is always about liberation. God is always about freeing you to be the best person that he created you to be. Where religion will try to control you and manipulate you you and guilt you and shame you into being what it wants to be. So take the Sabbath. The Sabbath was good. The Sabbath was created by God for human well-being and flourishing. The Sabbath was created by God to be a blessing, not a burden. Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. Some of you are rest, 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 rest. Uh, let's just get the order right. But it was created by God to be a blessing. It was created by a day to be enjoyed. And they turned it into a day to be endured. I remember as a child going to Brownstown Park and put it down and the swings were tied on the Sabbath. Some of you remember that? The swings were tied up. Let's not have fun on the Sabbath. Like, if you swing on the swing, you're working. Or I don't know what they were thinking. The swings were... T- like, like, it was taking it... T- if you kicked the f- football, people talked about you. And if you cut the grass, oh, well, don't do that. I mean, that was... You know what I mean? But seriously, it was something that God created. And man does that, and religion does that. Religion takes something good, something God created for us to do. To, to enjoy and it distorts it and it perverts it and, and it turns it into something which becomes a burden. You see, this man had a withered hand, but they had withered hearts. This man had a shriveled hand, but they had shriveled souls. Their souls were shriveled and withered so that they couldn't see the goodness of God. All they cared about was strict obedience to their rules. He had a deformed hand and they had a deformed religion. And that religion, that Judaism, had been created to be good, but had become twisted and distorted and perverted, and it was now useless at leading people into a life-giving relationship with God. And look at what it says. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They were there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They were looking for something wrong. They were looking to find fault. They were looking for something not to like. They were looking for something to upset them. They were looking for something to make them angry. They were looking for him to say or do something that would cause them to be offended. It's as well we don't live in a culture like that today, isn't it? Where everybody's trying to be offended. Everybody's just waiting for that moment when you say something that offends them. We live in a culture where everybody's looking to be offended and everybody's a minority except you. Everybody else is a minority with all the... And, 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 and you, you don't, you're, you've offended me. Hi, well, you didn't recognize my rights. And 
and you're privileged because you're this and that. And everybody's looking for a reason to be offended. And you know what I've discovered? You will always find what you're looking for. If you want to be offended, you will find a place to be offended. And that's not just in this story. That's just in life, isn't it? If you walked in here this morning, you know what, and you thought, I'm looking for a way to to be offended, you've already found 25 ways by now. Let's be honest. If you're looking for a reason to be offended in your relationship with somebody, you will find a way. If you're looking for a reason to be offended in your marriage, you will find a way. If you're looking for a reason to not like someone, you will be able to find something that causes you to not like someone. It's called confirmation bias. You will always find evidence to prove a verdict that you've already arrived at. If you've arrived at a verdict about someone or a group of people, you will always find evidence. So in our culture in Northern Ireland, we grew up with the the other side. And we were told things about the other side. And you might meet 999 people who don't confirm that thing, but you meet one person who confirms what you were told about the other side, and you go, they're all like that, aren't they? Can't trust any of them. Turn Turn your back on them, let's stab you in the back. Do you know what? You meet 999 anybody and you'll always find one person. It doesn't matter what culture, what background they're from. But because you've been brought up with that confirmation bias, because you're looking for it, have you ever noticed if you're about to buy a car, if you're going to buy a white Honda, you start seeing white Hondas everywhere you go, but you've not noticed them before, isn't that right? Because you're looking for them. And it's the same. If you come looking for something, you will find it. I could preach 40 minutes, and if you don't like me, you will find one minute of that 40 minutes. The 39 minutes might have been helpful, might not have been, but if you find one minute, that will be the one minute that you will focus on. Because you've come in looking for something to be offended by. You know, in the church, it can be the worst place for it. I call them heresy hunters. There's people out there just looking for reasons to call us heretics. There's people out there who go, oh, look at you and your worship and your loud music. It's all just a big show, isn't it? As they're sitting with the six of them at the cutting edge of 1800 with their organ and... And they're just looking for some... You know, and if that's their thing, that's their thing. But they're looking for something to be offended by. I have people who, are, don't Google yourself ever, okay? I know none of you would. I'm, I'm arrogant enough that I did it once. Um, about a year after we moved to Dublin, I decided to Google myself, just to see, just to see. You've all done it, don't lie. Um, and somebody had put on a form, somebody had written, I'm looking for a church in Dublin to go to. And somebody had said, you should go to St. Mark's or, or, or Coors St. Catharines. And somebody said, I wouldn't go to Coors St. Catharines because Craig Cooney's preaching is a little bit off the wall. Or something heretic, something like that. And I was like, I got offended. I was annoyed. And then I began to go, you know what, maybe it was that one Sunday they were there. Who knows? But, but, but they were looking for something. And if you're looking for something to be offended by, never mind the, the, the 200 people who came to Christ during our time there, somebody only noticed the one point I made that particular morning that they didn't like. If you will find what you're looking for, that's just what I'm trying to say. You'll find what you're looking for. And if you're, if you're looking for the good in people, you will find lots of good in people. If you're looking for something 
that you don't like, you won't have to look too hard. Let's keep reading, because the ice cream van is on his way. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So they were looking for a fight. There will always be haters. That's just life. I mean, Jesus, the sinless son of God, if he had haters, we're all going to have haters. Let's be honest. He was perfect. Um, and so that's just part of life. There will be people who don't like you. And these people are looking for a fight. And, and, and Jesus could have avoided it. Think about it. There's a number of ways Jesus could have avoided it. This man had had a shriveled hand for a long, long time. Okay? Jesus did not have to heal him on that particular day. True? It was the Sabbath. Could have said, see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow. Didn't have to heal him that day. Could have avoided it. Jesus could have said, Peter, stand in front of him. Peter would have been like, what do you want me to do? Because I was Peter. Do you want me to fight some people? No, no, just stand there, Peter. Okay? And turned around and, the, and Jesus could have healed him in private. He could have taken him off and said, look, after, after synagogue, why don't we go around the corner and I'll heal you. Jesus could have done it in private, in secret, but that's not Jesus. Look at what he says. Stand up in front of everyone. Jesus picks a fight. Stand up in front. Some of us are nicer than Jesus, by the way. Um, He provokes conflict and confrontation. We're so afraid of offending and upsetting people, even those who are blatantly wrong and who are looking for something to be offended by. And Jesus didn't care about that. He could have hidden, he could have changed it to a different day and he says, no, stand up in front of everyone. I want everyone to see this because there is a bigger issue at stake right here than just your hand. He confronts the withered, distorted, shriveled, perverted religion. And he says, stand up. And some of us need to stand up in some places of our lives. Some of us need to step forward and stop hiding. But here's the thing I noticed that's different from a lot of the stories where Jesus heals and restores people. The man never came to Jesus. We have no record of, you know, the way people called out Jesus, Jesus, or, you know, son of man. Or We have no record of him ever calling out to Jesus. Jesus spoke to him. He never addressed Jesus. He didn't ask Jesus. Jesus called on him. Because Jesus wanted to show that God is more interested in restoration than in rules. But there's something else. He didn't call on Jesus. And I think sometimes we are more all right with some things in our lives than Jesus is. He was willing to live with his withered hand. Jesus wasn't withered, willing for him to live with it for another day. That's why he didn't put him off to tomorrow as well. There are some things that we keep putting off that Jesus is saying, no, actually, I want to put it right today. There are some things that we have learned to live with that we say, that's just part of us. It's just who I am. It's never going to change. And Jesus says, actually, no, that's not who you are. I have created you for so much more than that. And he calls us forward. He says, stand up. I'm going to do something to transform your life. Look at verse 5. We are nearly there. Stretch out your hand. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. 
the, the Greek in, 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 in this is such deep emotion. He was, he was so angry. He was, he was, the literal word is, is wrath and, and deep grief. He, there was just this, you know, sometimes I think we have a very two-dimensional picture of Jesus. He, he felt such anger and grief. He was furious. He felt wrath. He, he was so moved. And I don't even, I think it was at the distorted religion that they'd taken something God created to be good and healing and, hope and, and, and bring wholeness and they distorted it and manipulated it and twisted it. But I think he was also so angry at just the effects of sin. There are some things we should be angry about, folks. There are some things as Christians we should be angry about. We should be angry that women are trafficked into this community. We should be angry that there are women who are sleeping with men who are locked in rooms and within probably two miles of this church and who have been there for years and nobody gives a rip about them. That should make us angry. We should be angry that there are people who are waking up this morning trying to find their next heroin hit or trying to get their next fix because their lives are so broken and so ruined. We should be angry about that. We should be angry that there is religion in this area that has distorted and twisted the gospel so much that people are living with condemnation and guilt their whole lives instead of finding a saviour who loves them. One of the reasons I went into ministry was I spent my teenage years in a church thinking... I couldn't bring any of my friends here. I got so annoyed. I, this is so irrelevant to my life and to my, 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 my peers. And that, honestly, and so when we take, when I'm talking about angry, don't just stay angry, do something about it. Sometimes actually your frustration is the fuel for your calling. The thing that makes you most angry, the thing that, and I know that for some of you, some of you are passionate about, about women who have been abused. Some of you are passionate about poverty. Some of you are passionate about different areas. Take that frustration, take that anger and find an outlet and do something with it. Let that, that anger, let that frustration become something that God uses to transform lives. And so Jesus here is angry. He feels deep grief and he's not willing just to keep things the way they are. He says this is not the way it should be because their hearts are stubborn. Their hearts are hard. Their hearts are unwilling to receive the love of God. And first he says, stand up. And then he says, stretch out. Stretch out. Some of you will have seen a photo that I put up on Instagram recently. Yeah, that is me. <laughs> Two weeks ago. <laughs> the people on podcast can go on Instagram and find it. Yeah, I just used to go around random places doing the splits. Um, <laughs> Do you know, I'm not double-jointed, by the way. You know how I was able to do that? I stretched every day. I was doing martial arts, I was doing karate and kung fu, and I stretched every day. And you know when you start stretching, it's really sore. It's like the first time you go to a gym, you know, where you feel sore for like a week, and you're like, I'm never going back there again. That place is a torture chamber uh, that I'm paying £33 a month for. But but you know how you how you get flexible you stretch and you hurt and you stretch and you hurt and you stretch and you hurt and Jesus says to us I want you to be a people who stretch 
I want you to keep stretching. Because some of us have got stuck in the place where we are. Some of us have got stuck in this comfort zone. You know the U2 song, you've got stuck in a moment that you can't get out of it. And I say it regularly, the only difference between a rot and a grave is the size of a hole. Some of us have got stuck. And instead of being stuck, God is calling some of us to stretch. And he says to this man, stretch, stretch out your hand. He tells the man to do the very thing. This man's hand is like this. And Jesus is saying, stretch out your hand. And he's also saying, stretch out the thing that you try so hard to hide. Because I know if I have a hand that's withered, that's, that's, that's shriveled, it's the one that I keep behind here. Notice Jesus doesn't tell him what hand to stretch. He just says, stretch out your hand. My temptation would have been to go like that. Show them my good hand. Show them my strength. Show them the best part of me instead of showing them the shriveled, withered part of me. He didn't say which hand. You see, this man had a good hand and a bad hand. He had a strong hand and a weak hand. And he had become an expert at hiding the weakness that he constantly had to live with. And we all hide our weaknesses and we show off our strengths. Again, just social media. We show off our strengths. How many of you, some of you here follow us on Instagram or Facebook, how many of you saw the lovely, I should have run this past Bex before I say this. How many, I know, I can see the face right now. How many of you saw the lovely photo of our family on Friday evening, of Becky and Elijah and I? That was, and it was, it was a lovely photo. We went out, we had a lovely date night. Do you know what I didn't post? The argument we had yesterday at lunchtime and all the... We did, we did. We had an argument yesterday at lunchtime. That's why I should have run that past her. Yeah, it's going to be a cold night in the Cooney house. Anybody got a spare room? Um, but, but I don't, I didn't post the irritation I had with Elijah yesterday when he wouldn't do what I asked him. You know why? Because we don't post that stuff. Some of you are like relieved that your pastor and his wife argue now and again. Like just once a year, uh, and I'm always right. But, but we don't post that stuff. We post the nice, happy family in the back garden. We were wearing matching outfits. That wasn't planned. And, you know, and Elijah's a smiling kid. We're like tickling him, trying to get him to smile. And we've got this beautiful photo. We didn't put on the argument in Moira yesterday afternoon or the times when Elijah was driving me. Because we want the world to see our strong hand. We want them to see the airbrushed, filtered version of our lives. And Jesus is saying to this man, I know you've got a strong hand and it's up to you right now because if you reach forward only your strong hand, I can't do anything with it. But if you will reach forward the place where you are most weak and most vulnerable, where the place that you try to hide, the place of your brokenness, the place of your greatest pain, the grace of your greatest hurt, the greatest place of your greatest shame, if you will reach forward the thing that you try to hide, then I can heal it. I can't heal what you are always hiding. But if you will show me it, I can do something with it. If you will give me the places of your lives where you're, he says, where you're weak, defective, deformed, broken, deficient, afraid, addicted, hurt, lost, lonely. You know why we don't show up? We fear rejection. We all fear rejection. That's why we show the best part of our lives. And yet, you know what I have discovered, and I'm discovering more and more, that people relate so much more to our weaknesses and our strengths. 
Some of you right now are going, again, like I say, he fights with his wife. I fight with my wife. I kind of like this guy more than I did 10 minutes ago. Because we could stand up here and paint the perfect picture of marriage. And we have, a, we have a good marriage. But it is not perfect and neither is yours. Neither are your relationships. Neither is your health. Neither are your finances for some of you. Neither are so many other areas of our lives. So let's stop airbrushing them and filtering them. And why don't we just get real with each other and real with God. And then he can maybe do something with it. I'm going to preach to this because there's more response from this. Why don't we get real with God and then... Seriously, why don't we just reach forward that we can't? We live in a world that is so sick of the fake and the superficial. Like our world has just seen so much hypocrisy and fake and superficial that they are just looking at church that is real. Particularly in our country where they have seen so much hypocrisy from a controlling dominant church. They just want a people that are real. That they can go, I can relate to you. You're messed up. I'm messed up. But you found a saviour. Tell me about him. But they are not looking for a perfect you. They're just looking for a real you. You're not looking for a perfect pastor. You're just looking for somebody who's real. And the world doesn't need a fake, airbrushed, filtered church. It needs a bunch of people who will take the trash of their lives and let God make something beautiful with it. And let's finish verses 5 and 6. He stretched, out his, he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. He stretched it out and it was restored. That's an unusual word, restored, because nearly everywhere else in the Bible it says healed. But this was the word restored. Restored, well, we talk about restoring. We talk about restoring homes, restoring cars, restoring motorbikes, restoring furniture. Restore means to bring back or to put back into a former original state, to return something to its earlier position or condition, to give back, to make return or restitution. And restore is a word that is used 120 times in the Bible. So restoration is a big deal to God. Our God is a God who restores. He's not a God of religion. He's not a God of rules. He's not a God of regulations. He's a God of relationship and restoration. But here's the strange thing. When I think about restoration, I think about going back to where something was lost, damaged, or broken. I think about reaching back into the past when I think about restoration. Yet Jesus tells the man not to reach into the past, but to step forward and to stretch into the future. Reaching back into your past pain, hurt, abuse, loss, whatever it is, we we tend to go back and remember and replay in our minds. And we keep thinking, if we can go back there, we can get it back. And Jesus is saying, actually, no. Your restoration is not found by going back. It's found by stepping and stretching forward into the good future that I have for you. And for some of you, that will look different than it will to others. Paul said it this way, forgetting what is behind, I press forward to take hold of that. Isaiah said, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. Step into tomorrow to get back what you lost yesterday. The best way to get back what you have lost is not to linger in the past, but to step into the future. 
what you need isn't back there, it's out there. And it's not making it the same as it was before because if it was so good before, you'd probably still have it. It's about making it better. You see, when God restores, he doesn't just give you back. He makes it better. But it takes faith. The man's hand wasn't healed before he stretched it. Some of us would be like, heal it and then I'll show it. Jesus says, show it and then I'll heal it. And if I want God to heal it, at some place, at some point, I have to stop hiding it. If I want God to heal a part of my life at some point, I've got to stop hiding it. Jesus says, show me the thing you hide. Reach out to me with the area of your greatest weakness and perfection and insecurity because God can't bless who I pretend to be. He can only bless the real me. And when, when he read, when he did the uncomfortable, God did the impossible. And when you obey, when you do the uncomfortable, you will see God do the impossible. And I believe this morning God wants to restore some of us. I, I, I went through the Bible yesterday and just found different places where the word restore is used. And I just want to read some of them. And I just want you to think about what in your life do you need God to restore? I'm going to pray for that. We're going to sing one song and then we're going to have a lot of ice cream. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore to you your position. That was about a job. Some of you need restored in jobs. Some of you are unemployed or some of you are in a, have been demoted. Some of you have found yourself, and, and, and I believe the Lord wants to restore positions to you. Positions of authority, positions of responsibility. Let Sihon City be restored. God wants to restore cities and communities. God wants to restore this community. The Lord your God will restore your fortune. Some of you just think God's against you. You've had bad luck, as you put it. Things have gone against you. The Lord wants to restore your fortunes. He wants to bless you. I want to restore, I will restore the land that belonged to your grandfather. There was something on this. I felt there was some area around land for one of, or one of you here this morning. That there is land that has been taken from you. It was family land or something. And, and the Lord wants to restore that to you. Let them be restored as in the days of the youth. He will restore to them well-being, full well-being. In other words, energy, vitality. Some of you are drained. Some of you are, are just so low and so lacking in energy. And, and, and God has said, I want to restore to you full well-being. The Lord restored his fortunes as Job and gave him twice as much as he had before. Some of you, God's going to give you double for your trouble. The Lord sustains them on their sick bed and restores them from their bed of illness. God wants to heal some people and restore them. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God wants to restore joy. You restored me to health and let me live. You will be called a restorer of broken walls, or repair of broken walls, restorer of streets. God wants to restore some streets and communities. Restore us to yourself, Lord. God wants to restore some people to himself this morning. My sanity was restored. God wants to restore some people's mental health. Some people's minds this morning. I will restore twice as much to you. Their sight was restored. That can be physical sight or spiritual sight. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. We're to restore each other gently. When one of us falls, we restore each other gently. And Paul says, I particularly, or not Paul, the writer of Hebrews, I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. There's some people in our lives that aren't there anymore that we want restored to us. Some prodigals, some family members, some broken relationships. And God wants to restore them. 
You see, we can restore things and we can restore situations. The one thing we can't restore is time, and yet God says this in Joel 2.25. I will restore to you the years of the locust has eaten. Some of you look back at a time in your life where you poured out... This is written to a group of people who for four years they've planted, they've sowed, they've watered, and just as the crops have grown, the locusts have come in for four years and destroyed the harvest. And God is saying, I can restore that. And some of you who have worked and planted and sowed and given it your all, and you didn't reap the results, and God is saying, I want to restore what you lost there. I want to restore what you lost there. God is the only one who can restore time. So what do you need restored?